This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Food & Wine's Tinfoil Swans, a weekly podcast serving up inspiring, touching, hilarious, and revealing conversations with some of the biggest names in the food and beverage world, and we hope giving you plenty to savor even after the episode is over. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Executive Features Editor at Food & Wine, and I am eternally fascinated by how successful, creative people become, well, themselves. What are the moments influences, missteps, pep talks, and decisions, big and small, that got them where they are today. There are plenty of reasons you already know and adore Padma Lakshmi. The journalist, former model, and game show host had a stunning 19-season run as a host, judge, and executive producer on Top Chef. She has written multiple best-selling cookbooks and a memoir, Love, Loss, and What We Ate, that is a personal favorite of mine. She has won a whole constellation of awards, including Emmys and James Beards, among others, for her work on Top Chef and on Taste the Nation. But speaking of Top Chef, just days after Padma and I spoke, it was announced that she was leaving the show and she will be diving full force into Taste the Nation, a show that she created for Hulu, focusing on the food culture of immigrant groups from across the nation and which just aired its second season. I am so excited to share this intimate and highly personal conversation about her experience as an immigrant to America, the fear and bravery in calling yourself a writer, about being a total dork, and how she has found purpose in using her hard-won platform to amplify marginalized voices. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of Tinfoil Swans, Padma Lakshmi and the Spoonful of Honey. I always start out, I somewhat know the answer to this because I read your absolutely incredible memoir, but who were you when you were 10 years old? Who was I when I was 10 years old? I was kind of quiet, but mischievous. <laughs> I was a girl who loved to roller skate all over the city. I loved to cook. I was already cooking simple foods. I would doctor up cans of soup by adding vegetables and spices to it. I would make my mother very simple things that I could do without turning on the stove, like baking things. I, so I already loved to cook. I was very independent. I was a glass-free kid. My mom was a single parent. And I think I felt, which I do a lot in my life, like an outsider. I felt like an outsider in America a little bit because of my ethnicity. And I didn't grow up going to school after a certain point or fourth grade with many Indian kids. And I felt like an outsider when I was sent back to India as well. I was sent back every three months for summer, every three months every year for summer vacation. And I went to South India to live with my grandparents. I didn't feel Indian enough there and I didn't feel American enough here. And I think in a lot of ways it's better now, but I still, all the personality traits that I had then I still have now. I'm wondering if that is what 
informs the way that you approach your conversations. You're a very curious person. And I love that because you use that lens to talk to people and taste the nation and all your other formats. Does that come from that place of not being the person who fits in? And because you have this empathy for people who maybe ended up somewhere different than where they started. Well, I can certainly identify with them. And I know what it feels like, of course, to be an immigrant, but I also know in a much wider philosophical plane what it feels like to not have control over your life or not have control over where you live or so many things that some of us take for granted. And that coupled with, you're right, I am very curious and I've always been really curious about food and everything else. So I do think that I hope what's infectious is that I genuinely want to know. I am genuinely excited to try this dish or take a bite of that or to learn about the person who's making that food. I've always been like that. Even when I was a toddler, I was curious to try new foods, which, you know, some of those foods probably I shouldn't have been eating as a toddler. But I've been someone who's also eager to learn. I wouldn't say I was like a studious person in school. I was a good student. I was name minus student, B-plus student. But since I've gotten out of school, I think for a long time I felt very unsophisticated or I felt like I didn't understand the culture. So I think my whole life in a way, maybe subconsciously or whatever, has been making up for that. And so I do genuinely want to learn about new dishes. I do want to experiment with a new spice. I do want to learn how to say people's names right because I've had people say my name so many ways. Right. <laughs> Yes. So when you're this 10-year-old girl and you're living in several cultures, but also between them, were you seeing yourself represented anyway? Are you paying attention to food culture or how chefs are represented on TV or in media? What does this look like to you, where food comes from? Food was just the thing that was always around. And food to me was a universe that was infinite, infinite universe of discovery. But I didn't grow up wanting to be in food. I didn't know, to be honest, that that was a career one could have. I didn't grow up in a family that went out to eat very much. I certainly didn't go to fancy restaurants or know the name of chefs. We finally went out to eat a couple times a month, once for pizza and one for Chinese or Thai food. And I love Thai food. We always went to Thai Orchid on Azusa Avenue. <laughs> when I was in high school with my parents. But I didn't know that it was a career that I could have. And I certainly didn't see anybody that looked like me in food or otherwise on TV, in magazines. I mean, of course, in India I did. But that age of lauded chefs and us knowing who they are is something that happened after I had already grown up. I'm so interested sort of in food media now. I've been in it for a while and a lot of my younger colleagues and peers, they went to school for this. And I'm trying to think of what my notion of this was. I mean, obviously you had Jacques and Julia on TV, sometimes like two fat ladies or <laughs> galloping gourmet. I remember Graham Kerr. That's all I had. My mother refused to buy cable until I went to college. And I know he's not supposed to be mentioned, Jeff Smith. Yes, we didn't know. <laughs> we didn't know about that. And sorry that that was the case. But all I knew as a kid was that he was going to travel with his fork through a country. And he influenced me immensely, that show, The Frugal Gourmet. 
in a way, it's not much different than what I'm doing now. He would make all the dishes from Spain and he would talk to you about Spanish history and the Inquisition and 1492 and in the middle of telling you how to make paella and papas bravas or whatever it was. And I love that. I love the connection between food and history. And you can see that, of course, in baking. <laughs> if I may say this, take it the right way. You're a dork and I love it. <laughs> I'm a happy dork. I think maybe in a way that surprises people sometimes because you have this amazing duality of, we ought to say it, you're just in Sports Illustrated right now in the swimsuit issue. But in your head, do you see yourself as a dork, as a swimsuit model, as a TV host? Where are you in this? And could you have imagined this when you were this young person? I couldn't have imagined any of it. <laughs> None of it. The only thing I could have imagined was being a writer. Yes. That is the only thing. When you strip away all the things that I have done or want to do, if you ask me for one word, I would say writer. I didn't even think about hosting as a job, except as a game show host, which I guess I am too on top show, but that wasn't in my consciousness. And I would have killed for Sports Illustrated in my 20s or 30s when I was still making a living as a model, but it never happened and the phone never rang. So it was complete shock and that was fine, but it's not how I think of myself, obviously. I mean, I think of myself now as a mother, as a writer, as a creator of creative projects, whether it's a script or a documentary, in this case, it's pretty much a documentary. And so those things, yes, I thought of myself as doing. I always thought I would be maybe a playwright or a writer if all else failed a substitute teacher, but I love history. I love local history and I love general knowledge. So I am very nerdy like that. People don't think of me that way, but I am. And I think it's because of the way I was raised and what we do in our home still to this day. We're big, big, big parlor game fanatics. I mean, my Thanksgiving and Christmas are the same. I usually hand out onesies and now people are like, enough with the onesies, we'll just bring the ones from years past. I do caftans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, we just eat and I always make whatever people request and then we just play pilot games. I want to go back to what you said, because this is something I've been trying to work out. It took me a very, very long time to call myself a writer. Not until in my 30s. I got a very late start. I switched careers. I'd been on the visual side of things. I was an art director. And I still sometimes stumble over the word writer. When did you feel confident saying that, like that was yours? You know, it came very late for me too. I was always embarrassed or shy. And in my late 20s and 30s, I also hung out with some pretty great writers. So I felt even more shy in that group to call myself a writer. Luckily, I had already published my first cookbook, so I could call myself a cookbook author. If you even go back to that first book, there is a lot of memoir writing or essay writing that are interstitial between the recipes that are not just head notes or whatever. But I had a syndicated column in the New York Times for some time, and I also had a style column in Harper's Bazaar, and it was still hard for me to call myself a writer. Writers were my ex-husband, and writers were Susan Sontag, you know. So I'm first with what I think is good taste in books. And so to call myself the same thing that we call them felt sacrilegious in a way. I know that feeling. When I was in my mid-20s, I was dating a writer who you know, all his friends worked at The New Yorker and all of these things. And I was sort of like the funny little girlfriend. But part of me always wanted to do the writer thing. But these folks were winning 
awards for all these things. And I just, I wouldn't let myself, do you remember the first time you said it aloud or or somehow identified yourself as such? I think it was just when I called somebody up for a piece I was doing for the New York Times. They wrote on food, fashion, and film. This was before the Food Network shows. I think I just wanted to say who I was and I don't think my name was going to carry much weight. So I said, hi, my name is Padma Lakshmi and I'm a writer. And I just left this voicemail because I wanted them to call me back. I was trying to do a story on some trends and I wanted to see if they wanted to be part of it. And I think just saying it out loud felt great because I had a reason to say it. I wasn't just saying it to prove something. I was really doing my job as a writer. So now I sort of vacillate between saying I'm an author and I'm a writer. I kind of like writer better, but I don't know. I think for me, it was putting it on my taxes. No, I'm <laughs> putting writer. I put it on my customs <laughs> form all the time. It feels good, right? It does feel great. Your writing process. Mine is very physical. When I know I'm done with a piece, it just leaves my body and I crumple. <laughs> when you write, where does it come from? What is your experience of writing? It comes from some dark, quiet place in the universe or inside me. And I wish I knew where it came from so I could access it more regularly. I mean, my process is just to wait. That's why it's really hard for me to do books more often than I do, because I think the best thing for me is to just get up in the morning and go straight to my computer, whether it's here in my office or just pull the computer on my lap in bed and just sit there and make a deal with myself that I'm going to sit here I then go to the bathroom for the next four hours. Maybe I'll go down and then make a pot of tea or something or have a crust of bread, but that's about it. And I find that the morning energy is the best. And then once you're deep into it and you actually have enough to work with, then the evening writing comes. And it's easier to write in the evening because you have something to work with and you're revising. But there have been times that something's come to me and I'm like, oh, I'll remember that in the morning. And then I don't. We'll be back with more from Padma Lakshmi after the break. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to Tinfoil Swans. Today, I am chatting with Padma Lakshmi. It's an interesting thing because you do wear so many different onesies. Switching between those, if you've envisioned yourself as a writer and this other part comes along, this other faction of it, oh, you can expand that by having your face and your voice involved in it and a different sector of your brain. Did you welcome that in? How did those sort of come together for you? It was hard. I fell into modeling during the last semester of my theater degree, and I had a ton of college loans, and I had a lot of student debt. And so 
I just took the job to pay off my college loans. And then it kind of sucks you in because it's really easy money and it doesn't, doesn't require that much from you. And you can work four or five days a month. And if you're a single young woman, it's enough. So from there, I was scouted in my mid twenties to be a co-host of an Italian show on Italian television called Dominica in. And that is how I fell into it. And I was live television. It was in Italian and it was such a good training ground. I didn't realize it at the time, but everything that I needed to know to host Top Chef or Padma's Passport or Planet Food, I learned there. And also Taste the Nation, of course. But I approach Taste the Nation not as a host. It's very different from my job on Top Chef. It's like completely the other side of the spectrum. I approach Taste the Nation as a writer. I mean, we write the episodes. We do a lot of research. It's like being a perpetual grad student in history. And so we look at food history, of course, but we also just look at history, history and local history and migration patterns and stuff. I'm approaching it with that intention. And then as part of my job to create this full picture, I need to coax information and experiences. I need to ask all our participants to recount some very deep things about their lives, very personal, personal things. And so that part of it, I just had to learn on the job, honestly. Like before Taste the Nation, I can count on one hand the times I've interviewed people. And it's always been at a literary festival, at a food festival. I think I interviewed Nathan Mirvold at the New York Academy of Sciences. And that was it. And for that, I crammed a lot too, believe you me. <laughs> I felt like I was studying for finals again. But I didn't really have any experience in high stakes interviewing at all. And then I just remembered what I relied on, to be honest, is just remembering what it felt like to be interviewed because I have been interviewed many times. And I also remember what it felt like when my story was taken out of context or when I was trying to answer a question as intelligently and quickly as I could, but I was struggling. And so I remembered all the things that I wished I had had help with. And I tried to do that for my participants. I mean, Taste the Nation is based on giving my platform to others to tell their story as they see fit. And that is my job with my producers to shape it and edit it and make them make sense when we've been in any given community for five days into a 30-minute episode. But it's really their story to tell, not mine. And I think it was also born out of a frustration. As a brown woman in America, I have also had my narrative taken from me. Some of that had to do with being an immigrant and being a brown woman. Some of that just had to do with being a woman. And so I didn't want that to happen to them. And it was why I created the show in the first place. I started working with the ACLU in 2016 because there's all this negative vitriol and misinformation about immigrants from people like Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller and Trump campaign. And so it really made me angry. And I started working with the ACLU and after three or four years, I just thought, I can't keep getting on my soapbox and telling people the same story, which is mine. And I wanted to do something artistic with everything that I had learned and put that into my work. And that is how Taste the Nation was born. And so it really comes out of a frustration of seeing things in the media and not seeing 
as much truth about certain communities as I would like, having lived in those communities. And I think if people do talk to me on Taste the Nation, it's because even though they've seen me on a red carpet or in a fancy dress with high heels on Top Chef or whatever, when you meet me for five minutes, they, I hope, feel like I am one of them. I may not be Chinese or Peruvian, but I know what it feels like. I think leading with vulnerability, both keeping theirs in mind and your own, because this is, your name is in the title of the show. Having that kind of sign-off comes with having a lot of responsibility as well. You know, it's funny because when we negotiated the deal with Hulu, they put that in the contract, the right to use my name in the title. And I actually didn't want it because I felt it was a lot of pressure. This is your blood, sweat, tears, your baby in your 20s. Could you envision being the person who is creating the culture? We all consume culture all the time. And it's been a funny shift, at least for me, over the past bunch of years. I was watching, I think, the Today Show yesterday, and a friend of mine was cooking on it. And I knew all three of the judges. And I thought, oh my gosh, people I care about are creating the culture. And that's an extraordinary thing. And again, it's a fairly big responsibility. Talk to me about how that feels to be the person who's making the culture now. I don't see it as that big a thing. I think I would drown in my own mind of where all that went if I thought about it as I'm creating culture. What I can tell you is that this is the first time I've had the opportunity to create something of my own from the ground up. Until Taste the Nation, I've always just been cast in people's projects, it is liberating because I would be on sets and I would say, I know that's not the right way to do it. Even if I didn't have experience. And then once I had experience, I was like, that is for sure not the right way to do it. And so I had all this experience and information. And I also, again, was frustrated by not seeing stories that I thought were interesting. And so having that power is exhilarating. I don't think of it as culture with a capital C. I see it as very small with great specificity. As I also think good writing has great specificity. I think of this project, every episode to me is about texture and sounds and emotions. And that's why every episode of Place the Nation also has a thesis beyond just here are some Nigerians in Houston. No. Here's some interesting Nigerians in Houston that are going to help me talk about Blackness in America as a non-African-American. Here are these Cambodians in Lowell. Well, yes, they make this great fish noodle soup, but they also are here to talk to me about what it's like starting over with nothing when you don't even know the language. And that episode is actually my answer to people who say we shouldn't let immigrants or asylum seekers in this country. Lowell is this tawny New England town that has fallen on hard times. And within a generation, they've been vitalized Lowell. One in four Lowellians is Cambodian. They've opened up businesses and given employment and they've even cleaned up the river. Wow. Have a clean river for your family to picnic at and, and fish in. I can't remember the last time that I would eat fish from some body of water. <laughs> to me, all of those things are important. I'm so in the weeds tinkering with every aspect of it because I myself and yes, I'm a nerd and very bookish, but I'm also somebody who's super sensorial. It's why I'm a good cook. It's not because I have great cooking techniques, believe me. If you saw me chop an onion, you'd be highly unimpressed. <laughs> but what I do 
understand acutely is how to absorb information also with my senses. So I can tell if something is done by the way the boiling sounds. I can tell with the popping of the mustard seeds. I can smell when the meat is done because it has a particular smell. I can tell something by the way it feels in my fingers. And so obviously you can't eat the food on tastination, but I need to somehow create that sensorial experience. It's really something that I put together like a big painting or sculpture or puzzle. I'm not thinking about it as a whole and as I'm creating culture. That attention to detail comes from respect. It's a matter of respect to get the pronunciation right, to get people sounding their best too. It feels like a respectful way to approach these things. This feels like the way that you approach this feels sort of like the difference between fast fashion and and couture or something like that. And you can feel it in the production. But there's also another element at play, and I hope it's okay to talk about this, but it feels like the motivation for a lot of sort of how I have seen you express yourself and evolve over the time that I've been watching you. It feels like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it feels like you've gotten more comfortable with anger (laughs) in a way that I think is wonderful. And you used the word before, liberating. Do you think about that? Is that a thing that comes into play for you? I think we don't talk about female rage enough, so I could talk about that all day long. I think it comes from having the experience and time to observe lots of things in our culture and also live in my skin in this culture. And I have this immense need to express those things that I think. And you can call that being motivated or propelled by rage. Even when I was little, I wasn't an academic perfectionist. I was probably a B plus, A minus student. I was that girl that crammed it in all the night before. I wasn't like a studious you know, person who did extra credit and stuff. But I am that person that will tell you if you spelled a word wrong. Because I want somebody to tell me. Yeah. I am somebody who wants to correct something. And that may come because I, too, had so little control over some very traumatic things that happened to me early in my life. But I just think... For so long, I didn't understand why other people weren't let in the room or why different people weren't on TV. And so hallucination is a product of that frustration. And it's not anger. It's more, let me tell you something you need to know because it's important and it's interesting and it's going to better you. It's sort of this kind of school marminess, I think. And it's something that I've always had. And I think the reason I'm a cookbook writer or author is because when people come to my house for dinner, I much prefer having people over at home and cooking than going out because, first of all, it's private and nobody's overhearing your conversation. And if somebody likes something, I'm going to tell you how to make it because I'm so excited that I've managed to make something that you love that I want to share that with you. Which is not typical of most Indian aunties, by the way, because they will always leave an ingredient or two out, you know, but I'm not like that because probably that's also part of the frustration that I felt when I was asking other people for recipes. So I just think that we will be better the more clear-eyed we are about our history in this country. I know that there are a lot of people, especially politicians in the South, who are banning books and are afraid of African-American studies or learning about the different 
tribes of Native Americans that have lived in our country for thousands of years, 12,000 years before anybody else got here. Anytime you look back in history, there are going to be difficult things. And I do think that Germany has done a better job of reckoning with its very dark history than we have. And I think that everybody would be better if they did that. And so what I'm trying to do with Taste the Nation is give you that history, but also give you a spoonful of honey and say, isn't this food delicious? And aren't these people interesting? Because they are, and it is. And so I am hopefully washing down all that history with entertainment. One of the greatest compliments that I have received about Taste the Nation is that teachers will show it. In school, Jose Andres showed it in his university course, but also middle school teachers and high school teachers because they write to me and they tell me, this is better on Native Americans than anything that I have been able to find in our textbooks. And so that to me is all the gold star I need. I guess to your earlier question, when you were saying, you know, do you think about it as creating the culture? I think about it more as correcting the culture. That makes a lot of sense. I saw you moderate an incredible panel at Family Reunion a couple of years ago with Carla Hall and Priya Krishna, like just women I admire tremendously. Priya has been a mentee of mine for years. She's such an extraordinary human being. And it's fun because she pops up on other podcasts that I listen to. She shows up on Pop Culture Happy Hour. And it makes me so happy every time. But the through line of this conversation was something that I think is really important about speaking up for what you want, what you deserve, and then helping somebody else do that. How can people do do that in their everyday lives? And why is that so important? You do that for the next generation. You do that so that when you go to sleep permanently, you close your eyes saying, I made the world better than it was when I got here. The pandemic taught us that we are connected no matter what, whether we want to believe it or we want to isolate ourselves or not, we are totally interdependent on each other and we should be. So for me, it's really about that. I just want to leave something that lasts. That to me is immortality. So you know I'm a huge fan of your book, Tomatoes for Neela. Yes, thank you. It's beautiful. It's lyrical. It's for a younger age group. Who did you write that for? I mean, and the story is one that I've, as you know, told many times at bedtime to Krishna. And it had a squirrel in it and all kinds of other characters. And I wrote it really for children and parents to have a conversation about where our food comes from, including our farm workers, but also have a conversation about eating seasonally, because that's how the story was born. Krishna sort of asked me for pomegranates in the dead of summer. And I was like, what are you doing? And I realized, why would she know when anything grows? She is a kid who lives in the city and goes to Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or whatever, and she can get anything she wants. It was hard for me to find books about kids who were biracial or were not white. When I was growing up, I had a blonde doll with blue eyes, even in India, you know, which is a strange thing. And I had books with only white children in them. And so a lot of times when I would take Krishna to the playground, people would either know who I was because they had seen me on Top Chef or they thought I was a Guatemalan nanny. One of the two. And so because my daughter presents as white, that often bothered her too when she was little and she just didn't understand it. 
And so I wanted to write the book for children who had different backgrounds. I wanted to see that commingling of cultures. That's why in Tomatoes Vanilla, you have that double page spread with all kinds of dishes from all over the world because nobody eats one kind of food all the time. Wherever you live, that's ridiculous. Thank God it makes eating more joyful and varied and exciting. And that's why in the back pages, you also have the history of tomatoes. The tomatoes come from Mesoamerica. And you know that in the olden days when Columbus brought them back, that people were afraid of them because they thought they were poisonous and all that stuff. And so it's really to teach children about food, but teach children about food in a holistic way. And I think if there's one thread through my work, whether it's the memoir or the children's book or Taste the Nation or the best of travel anthology and even the encyclopedia, it is about trying to give you a whole picture. Imagine having a copy of that book in your hand and handing it to that 10-year-old you. What do you want to tell her? I want to say this is for you because your story matters. Your food story matters, your heritage matters, and it is interesting, and you deserve to have a book that you are the star of. Okay, I just got all full goosebumps all over the place. Okay, you know the name of this podcast is Tinfoil Swans. What is a tinfoil swan moment to you? (laughs) My whole life is a tinfoil swan moment. I know that because I was lucky enough to be randomly born to my mother, who was a middle-class educated woman in India, that when her marriage became unbearable, she could get a visa to come to America and give me a new life of possibility. I wasn't supposed to grow up in America. I wasn't supposed to really go to a liberal arts college. My mother is a nurse. My stepfather is a plumber. I wasn't supposed to be a model because I have a seven-inch scar on my arm. So all of the things that I've managed to do have been a surprise. I wish I could tell you there was some grand plan, but there really wasn't. I just kind of floated through life and took every opportunity that I could that presented itself. And that's something I also tell young people is just push against the open door. You never know. You don't ever watch reality television and I don't watch reality competition shows. And it was Not at all in my plan to do that. But the opportunity came up. I was free. I needed the dough, frankly. And I was publishing my second cookbook. And I thought it would give Candy Tart Hot and Sweet a little bump. That's why I did Top Chef. And I had no idea it would become this huge pop cultural phenomenon. And so I wouldn't have Taste the Nation if I hadn't done my time on Top Chef. And so you never know where life is going to take you. I am the tinfoil swan, and I may not be white, and I may not be soft, but I'm still shiny. I look forward to the next phase of my life because I do feel that I am in a very transitional point in my life. I look back on my life, and I think this is important to do, no matter if you're young or old. And I look at moments in my life that have been pivotal, but I had no idea they were going to be pivotal. I have a feeling that this moment I'm standing in is going to be a very pivotal point in my life. And I look forward to making that turn. I'm going to follow you, listen to you, read you wherever you go. Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Padma Lakshmi. Be sure to follow Tinfoil Swans on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we would love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we would really appreciate it. And you can also find us online at foodandwine.com slash tinfoilswans. When I say we, I mean our incredible production team. Lottie Le Marie, Jennifer Del Sol, Michael Classic, Amelia Schwartz, Ashley Day, Sean Flynn, and Hunter Lewis. Make sure to come back next week for my interview with Enrique Olvera. Take care of yourself until the next time. 